In our last few episodes, we've explored relationships between Jews and the non-Jewish societies in which they've lived. Relationships that have ranged from slightly awkward to murderous. We've seen how non-Jewish regimes have exploited connections among Jews for their own purposes. How insane anti-Semitic conspiracy theories have warped the minds of otherwise intelligent people. And how Jews have sometimes become convinced that emphasizing their own persecution or erasing their own culture was their best bet to win over their non-Jewish neighbors. We've seen how the Jews' position as outsiders has worked against them, not just in obvious ways, but in subtle ways too. We've also seen how that power imbalance continues to undermine how we understand the Jewish past and present. Our story today has all those same uncomfortable features. The Jews as disparaged outsiders, the non-Jewish regimes that exploit the connections among Jews, and a power imbalance with huge implications for how we're able to understand the Jewish past. In today's story though, all those uncomfortable facts miraculously worked out for the best. And actually, those uncomfortable facts were precisely what led to one of the most dramatic historical discoveries the world has ever seen. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. Before we travel off to distant lands and eras, we're first going to go back in time to historic 1983 to meet historic six-year-old me when I first notice a certain strangeness in how Jews think about the past. When I was six years old, I became obsessed with the concept of a time capsule, a container where you store artifacts and documents that represent your own time and place, and then you bury it for future generations to discover. My best friend and I had read about time capsules in a children's magazine, and we decided to make them together. We filled up shoeboxes with things we'd written and then stashed them away for those future generations. Unfortunately, we got a little confused between time capsules and space capsules. So we filled our time capsules entirely with documents about aliens. While I eventually lost interest in aliens, I never lost interest in time capsules. As I grew older, I kept constant journals and records obsessed with preserving disappearing days. Later, I understood that this obsession wasn't just personal. My life as a religious Jew was itself a kind of time capsule, an elaborate and ritualized excavation of the past where we always seem to be leaving Egypt or wandering in the desert or standing at Sinai. That anxious urge to preserve and document the past, to constantly fill the time capsule, is deeply connected to the precarious history of the Jews. Today's story is about the Cairo Geniza, a massive data dump of over 130,000 documents dating back to the 10th century, uncovered in 1897 in a storage room in a backwater synagogue in Cairo. It's the biggest time capsule in the history of the world, and its discovery depended on every single thing going exactly right. In my book, People Love Dead Jews, I wrote about an organization called Diarna, the Judeo-Arabic word for our homes. 
Diarna is a time capsule for grown-ups, a vast digital archive and online museum that documents the remaining evidence of vanishing Jewish communities in the Arab and Islamic world. In the mid-20th century, political upheaval and anti-Semitic violence caused a mass exodus of almost a million Jews from many countries in the Middle East and North Africa, places that Jews had called home for thousands of years. Diarna sends photographers and researchers to document synagogues, schools, and cemeteries in places where nearly all the Jews either fled or were driven out. Making and keeping real-time capsules isn't easy. The photographer Christy Sherman went on a Diarna expedition in 2010 to document Jewish sites in Tunisia. While she was there, she decided to go to Syria, which had been home to an enormous Jewish community dating back 2,700 years. There are almost no Jews left in 21st century Syria, and hardly anyone had even seen the country's historic synagogues in decades. She decided it was worth the risk. Here's Sherman with her story. I only had one lead, a Jewish antiquity shop called George Dabdu. I was told by a Syrian woman in New York that it was the last Jewish business in Damascus. My wonderful guide, Rula, could safely take me as far as the edge of the souk. And from there, I had to navigate the rest of the way. They say in Yiddish that something is beshert, meaning lucky or destined to happen. So when I arrived in front of the store, one of the owner's sons, who normally lives in Brooklyn and speaks English, was visiting the family and sitting right outside at a table having Turkish coffee. After some conversation explaining why I was there, David said, I want to take you somewhere very important. He got on his mobile and called his uncle, who showed up in his American car 20 minutes later. So with David's father, who had been in the shop, the four of us drove two kilometers northeast of Damascus to the 1,800-year-old shuttered Eliyahu Hanavi Synagogue, otherwise known as the Jobar. Over the decades, with the majority of the Jewish population emigrating to either Israel or Brooklyn, most of the 11 synagogues in Syria had been closing down. The precious contents, the Judaica, has been housed in the Jobar for safety. So in a sense, it was also like a Jewish museum. We came through the locked courtyard, and as the uncle pushed open the synagogue door, the sunlight hit the heavy beaded chandeliers and lanterns that were hanging from the rafters. When the light was switched on, I could see bright red ornate carpets covering the walls and the floors. Comfortable couches, not hard benches or chairs, were typically placed facing the ark on the eastern wall. The centerpiece was a striking blue wood carved teva, or bima, that was situated in the center of the sanctuary as in the Sephardic tradition. The Jobar is said to be the most sacred synagogue outside of Jerusalem. It was built on top of a cave where the prophet Elijah concealed himself to avoid persecution and where he also anointed Elisha, his successor. 
I had not been in Damascus 12 hours, and already I found myself in the jewel of the crown. At the time, I had no context of where I was, but I took out my camera and quietly walked around taking photographs. As I was coming up the steps with David after lighting a candle in Elijah's cave, I could see his father sitting in the place where he most likely always sat and prayed with his family on Shabbat. It was painful seeing tears coming down his face. It so happened that I was the last person with the camera to have entered the Jobar. For four months later, the Arab Spring started, as did the Syrian civil war. Then, in May 2014, the Eliyahu Hanavi took a direct hit in a crossfire attack from Assad's regime forces. Nothing was left but rubble and centuries of history and memories. Sherman's perilous trip to Syria and Diarna's mission to collect photographic evidence of Jewish life in the Middle East feels very contemporary. But the story of the Cairo Geniza has a lot in common with Diarna's photography time capsule. The Geniza story ends with an enormous amount of material evidence that ultimately rescues the history of Middle Eastern Jews from oblivion. And like Christy Sherman's surprise trip to Syria, it begins with brave and curious women taking a big and risky journey to a place where most sane people prefer not to go. To become a time traveler, you have to start out a bit uprooted, unattached to your own time and place and willing to cross all kinds of borders. So of course, our story of the discovery of this massive medieval Egyptian Jewish archive starts just where you'd expect, with two widowed, middle-aged Scottish Presbyterian identical twins. Oh, and these women were also geniuses. Here to tell us more about these women is Janet Soskis, a theologian and professor emerita from Cambridge University in England, who now teaches Catholic theology at Duke. Soskis's book, Sisters of Sinai, Tells the story of these amazing twins, Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson. They're born in the 1840s in Scotland. Their mother died very shortly after they were born and they were only children. So their father brought them up much as he would have done boys. He brought them up very highly educated and he quickly discovered they were bright and good at languages. And he promised them that for every language they learned, he'd take them to the country where that language was spoken. And of course, this was an enormous incentive for them. And they had each other as sort of practicing partners. So they quickly mastered French and Italian and other languages to take them abroad. By a strange twist of fate, their father was left a very great deal of money. Sadly, he died when the twins were quite young. So they uh, set about a career of traveling and they decided to go on a trip to the Holy Land. And this was extremely unusual, but they were devout Presbyterians. 
it was very unusual to do anything when you were in deep in mourning. But here they had the advantage of having a twin who thought it was a great idea and not having other relations, the uncle or the aunt or the cousin who say, oh, what about your reputation, my dear? They didn't have any such appurtenances. So um, they planned a trip down the Nile and then they were going to go uh, on horseback to Jerusalem across Palestine as it was then. The twins' trips to the Middle East weren't just unusual. They were unheard of. This was an era where women, especially widows, were expected to sit at home and mope about their husbands. Instead, Margaret and Agnes went off to tour Greece on horseback and Egypt on camelback, places where even local women rarely went outside without men escorting them. But these sisters weren't just gallivanting around the Mediterranean for kicks. They were on a very Christian mission. In the days when they were traveling, of course, um, the Nile was regarded as Holy Land trip because most Western Europeans knew the Nile and stories of the Nile from the Bible. All that we now know of the pharaohs and Tutankhamun and so on, that wasn't discovered till the 20s and 30s. And so they'd gone on another trip to Greece, which they regarded as a Holy Land trip because St. Paul had been all over there. They were devoted to the story of Moses. They wanted to follow in the footsteps as pilgrims had been doing Christian pilgrims from the third century. Following biblical footsteps wasn't enough for these sisters either. Agnes and Margaret were Bible hunters. They were actively searching the Middle East for the oldest existing manuscripts of the Bible. In the late 19th century, Bible hunting was kind of a blood sport. Agnes had actually attempted this while her sister was married, um, but her brother-in-law had called her back and said, no, you can't go, it's too dangerous. Um, the professor of Arabic from Cambridge had been murdered there not long before, although he had been doing a bit of espionage for the British government was carrying sort of, as it were, sacks of doubloons with which to bribe the Bedouin. So be careful what you wish for. To succeed at Bible hunting, the hunters needed access to the latest scholarship. Margaret and Agnes were better educated than most university professors. But as women, their only way into a university was to hang out near one. Luckily, they had inherited the means to do so. They built themselves an enormous Scottish-style mansion in Cambridge, a place where they could meet and mingle with Cambridge University scholars. Those scholars told them about ancient manuscripts squirreled away at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai, where Greek Orthodox monks kept them under lock and key. British and German researchers had tried to talk their way into St. Catherine's before, and all of them had failed. But the sisters had a major advantage. They were women, so men like the monks would assume they were in dire need of rescue in the desert. Also, they were fluent in modern Greek. The monks let them in. So they, they were welcomed in, and they did discover, or were shown a very grubby ancient a book that had been in a kind of dark cupboard where thrown away books were, or manuscripts, these were just tossed away. They found this very bedraggled looking manuscript. And this turned out to be one of the very oldest copies of the Christian gospels that we have. After sweet talking the monks, the sisters came away with a truly remarkable discovery. The world's oldest existing copy of the gospel according to Mark. It was exactly like the gospel that the world knew and loved, except for two small details. There was no virgin birth and also no resurrection. Otherwise, it was exactly the same. It 
took some time for Agnes and Margaret to get this discovery recognized by so-called real scholars, many of whom knew less than they did. You can tell that the academics thought these are just a couple of lady travelers, just a couple of widows, just a couple of Scots, just a couple of Presbyterians. They weren't members of the university in any way. They weren't recognized scholars. So finally, they had to trick the scholars into looking at this manuscript by inviting the wife of one of them to lunch and saying, oh, bring your husband. And at a certain stage, their page, their photographs had been laid out on the grand piano and say, they said, oh, now you'll want to look at our photographs. Well, he didn't, but he did. And he, he could see that this was very, very important. Once they charmed the academics, they were able to publish their results to enormous success. Then they went back to the Sinai to hunt down more Bibles. But during their long stopovers in Cairo, local people were also hunting them. Specifically, souvenir dealers hoping to make some cash. Those souvenir dealers could practically smell rich foreigners. One particularly wily one noticed the sisters' interest in Hebrew manuscripts and offered to sell them a bunch. The manuscripts this guy was selling weren't from the Bible, or at least not any part of the Bible that the twins knew. The sisters bought them anyway and took them back to Cambridge. In Cambridge, they had a friend who could help. Solomon Schechter was kind of an oddity in Cambridge because he was the lecturer in his official title was Lecturer in Talmudics, in an institution that really its sole purpose was to churn out Christian scholars. That's Ben Outhwaite, the current director of the Cairo Geniza Collection at Cambridge University Library. Like the twins, he's really into Hebrew manuscripts, and like the twins, he got there in a roundabout way. I did a PhD in medieval Hebrew linguistics at Cambridge. Um, and I focused on the medieval Hebrew used by the Geonim and other sort of Jewish dignitaries in the 11th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. So I did a PhD in that. Before that, I did an MPhil in Hebrew, medieval Hebrew. Before that, I did a first degree in Hebrew studies, which was every bit of Hebrew from the earliest scratchings on rock through to the novels of David Grossman. Before that, I started a degree in Chinese, but... In the middle of that, or in the middle of the, after the first year, I got married to an Israeli. And that kind of changed my uh, academic interests. I took some time off from learning Chinese, and I went to a kibbutz and milked cows for a year. Time capsules attract unusual people. And the main person this one attracted was the weirdest of them all. Solomon Schechter was a time traveler in his own lifetime, a boundary crosser who teleported himself from an almost medieval childhood all the way to Cambridge University, the pinnacle of late 19th century civilization. He was born in a Romanian shtetl, where his original name wasn't even the very Jewish Solomon, but the even more Jewish Schneer Zalman. His parents were Lubavitcher Hasidim, and they named him after the original Lubavitcher Rebbe, Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who founded the Jewish religious movement called Chabad. And his last name? Well, Schneir Zalman didn't have one. Schechter is just the Yiddish word for a kosher slaughterer, which was his father's job. This was a world so pre-modern that last names didn't even exist. But here's one thing this Romanian Lubavitcher had in common with those Scottish women from the moment he was born. 
Like them, he was an identical twin. And both sets of twins were destined for adventure. Schechter and his identical twin each left their Romanian shtetl as teenagers and time-traveled into modernity, but on two completely different paths. His twin brother went to Palestine, where he helped found what's now the Israeli city of Zichron Yaakov. Meanwhile, Solomon Schechter left for universities in Vienna and Berlin, and finally to England. For most Jews at that time, this would have been a path straight out of Judaism. But Solomon Schechter wasn't most people. This was a man who taught himself English while living in Vienna for the sole purpose of reading George Eliot. And then he taught himself French for the sole purpose of reading Voltaire. By the time he took the position of reader in rabbinics at Cambridge University, as only the second Jew the university had ever hired, he was reading every book the university library owned on the subject of biblical studies, and also reading 365 novels a year. Jews were a rare thing in Cambridge. There was no synagogue in Cambridge in those days. There were Jews living in the city, and there had been a large Jewish community in the Middle Ages before it was kicked out when they expelled the Jews from England. And it had never kind of recovered after that. And so when Solomon Schechter arrived in 1890, he was definitely a, an odd man out. Schechter was hired by Cambridge thanks to Moses Montefiore, a Jewish philanthropist who was trying to upgrade British Jewish life. Montefiore had this idea that importing scholars from the finest institutions in the East, the greatest Jewish scholars that he could find, would improve generally, just by their presence, the, the level of learning amongst the academic establishment, but also amongst the general populace. Montefiore squeaked Schechter through the university's Anglican power structure. In general, the university only needed Jews around to help trained the ministers in reading Hebrew, and usually not even that. Schechter was barely in the loop, and also barely getting by. It wasn't terribly well paid, and I think it was actually his position was sponsored by the Montefiore family, that Schechter, in order to make ends meet, had to take another job. So he became the curator, initially the sort of deputy curator, and then became a full curator of oriental manuscripts in the or oriental collections in the university library. Um, so he was both a librarian and, and a lecturer. And later in his career in Cambridge, he became a reader, which is like being a professor without being called a professor. But I think because he was Jewish, it was actually a problem to make him a professor. It is true that unless you were a member of the Church of England, a male member of the Church of England and ordained, a lot of university posts were closed to you. Would things have been different if Schechter had converted to Christianity? The proof was at Cambridge's rival school, Oxford, where Schechter's counterpart was a man named David Margoliath. Margoliath's parents were former Jews who had converted to the Church of England, and then they went one better. Margoliath's father became an Anglican priest, whose paid job was to proselytize to the Jews, using his knowledge of Judaism to convince them to join the church. Margoliath Jr. was an Anglican priest too, but he earned his Oxford doctorate as what was called an Orientalist, a scholar of Eastern languages, including Hebrew. Margoliath held a chaired professorship at Oxford and collected awards for his work. Schechter, meanwhile, had never even been allowed to earn a doctorate at all. Margoliath's dissertation was about a book of the Christian Bible called Ecclesiasticus, a compilation of poetry and wisdom literature known to Jews as Ben Sirah. 
I know this sounds obscure, but stay with me here. Because Ben Sira turns out to be the key that unlocks the time capsule. In the 1890s, the Book of Ben Sira was an enduring mystery. There are Hebrew quotations from Ben Sira that pop up all over Jewish sources. But the complete book itself existed only in the Christian Bible, in Greek. So who was Ben Sira and what language did he write in? Scholars didn't know, but Margoliath thought he did. In Margoliath's inaugural lecture at Oxford, he told his fellow scholars that he had conclusively determined that Ben Sira had never written in Hebrew at all, thus showing that centuries of silly rabbis didn't know what they were talking about. This idea was hardly a surprise. Oxford and Cambridge were both church schools, and the whole superstructure of university learning was almost designed to dump on Judaism. Church fathers were trustworthy ancient sources, but ancient rabbis who lived at exactly the same time were obviously fools. David Margoliath, by all accounts, was not a very nice man. If you read his articles, he's tremendously mean about everyone. And I, he had entered into various controversies with leading scholars, and, and Schechter was well aware of him. And when Schechter did publish the Ben Sira, and when the various different bits of Ben Sira that came out were published, David Margoliath wrote a particular, he, he produced a pamphlet which actually talked to, about the original Hebrew of Ecclesiasticus, which he put in ironic quotes, and then proceeded to say why all the leading scholars of England were falling for this farrago of nonsense, this forgery by a medieval Persian-speaking Jew who could barely read Hebrew. He made his point quite strongly and, and really dug a massive great hole for himself because you know, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and Ben Sira fragments were found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, long after Schechter was dead and buried and long after Margoliath had you know, shuffled off, it can be proved you know, without a doubt that the copies that we have in the Cairo Geniza are as close to the original Hebrew as we'll ever get, you know, unless we find further copies in Masada or Qumran. So Margoliath was 100% wrong and absolutely opinionated, but you know, he was of his time. Schechter happened to know a lot about Ben Sira. In his free time between his multiple jobs, he had spent 15 years studying all the scattered quotations from Ben Sira throughout centuries of rabbinic literature, trying to piece the mystery together for himself. And since the chaired professors wouldn't socialize with the likes of him, he became best friends with the Scottish twins. By the time he became friends with Margaret and Agnes, Schechter was neither a Romanian Lubavitcher nor an Anglican convert. Instead, he was exactly the kind of person who was ready to travel back in time and return to modernity alive. Which is why he was ready on the morning of May 13th, 1896, when Agnes casually mentioned that she had some Hebrew manuscripts that she'd just brought back from the twins' last trip to Egypt. 
They brought with them a thousand or so manuscripts that they had bought from book dealers in Egypt, and they sorted them out themselves. And these two women were quite capable scholars. They read Arabic and Syriac and so on. But there was one particular manuscript that they couldn't make sense of. It was in Hebrew. They could read it, but they didn't recognize it. So Agnes, when she found this um, text, which she didn't recognize, thought it must be something that Solomon would. She happened to bump into him in the street. She says, you know, you know, come over sometime and see these things. You might be interested. And by the time she got home, there he was going through. She had them all spread out on the table, dining room table. And he was immediately discovered this and was terribly excited about it. He said he told her what he thought it was. It was Ben Sira. Thanks to good luck, plus 15 years of research, Schechter knew immediately that he was holding the original Hebrew text of Ben Sira a book that wasn't supposed to exist. He was able, more or less at a glance, to identify the manuscript, the fragment of a paper manuscript dating from the 10th or 11th century as a piece of the lost Hebrew of the book of Ben Sira, the book of Ecclesiasticus in the Christian tradition. It had been lost in Hebrew sometime in the Middle Ages, maybe Sadiagon or Haigon, so from the the 10th or 11th century, had been the last great Jewish thinkers to see the book as far as we know, because they're the last people to ever written about a Hebrew version of the book of Ben Sira. And then it disappeared from the Jewish tradition until it turned up on a dining room table in a mock Scottish baronial mansion built at the foot of a Norman castle in the middle of the city of Cambridge, shown to Solomon Schechter, possibly the only man in England who could have identified it as the lost Hebrew of this forgotten book, by two Scottish Presbyterian women who had happened to buy it amongst a job lot of medieval manuscripts from a dodgy book dealer somewhere in Egypt. The serendipity, which is always the word used about it, sorry, the serendipity of the whole tale is that these two women, you know, chose this fragment, well, this fragment chose them, to present Sir Solomon Schechter, who had made a study of the Book of Ben Sira, and he had published a work on it in the 1860s. So of all the people in England that they could have shown a copy of Ben Sira to, he was the only one who would A, recognise it for what it was, and B, be sympathetic to the idea that you could recover the Hebrew, you know, after a thousand years. The dodgy book dealer was Schechter's next clue. Where were these amazing Hebrew manuscripts coming from? And where was the rest of this mysterious book of Ben Sira? Thanks to his life lived as a religious Jew, Schechter had an idea. In Judaism, all texts containing the name of God are considered sacred, so they can't be destroyed or thrown away. So what do you do with things like damaged Torah scrolls or worn out prayer books or photocopied pages of a kid's bar mitzvah lesson? Well, Jewish law says they have to be buried in the earth like a person. But until enough documents accumulate to bury, most Jewish communities keep these damaged texts in a designated storage space or in Hebrew, a geniza. Schechter guessed that these torn and damaged Hebrew texts must be from a Geniza in a synagogue in Cairo. Later, he found out just how right he was. Those dodgy book dealers turned out to be janitors from the Ben Ezra Synagogue, a 900-year-old synagogue in an old Cairo neighborhood called Fustat. In the 1890s, Fustat was an out-of-the-way slum. But a thousand years earlier, Fustat was like Tel Aviv or New York, a high-tech city that was also a major world center of Jewish life. Oh, and here's one more thing about the Geniza in the Ben Ezra synagogue. 
no one had bothered to clean out this synagogue's room-sized Geniza in over 900 years. Schechter knew he couldn't tell too many people about this. He had to get there first, before all those non-Jewish scholars found out. Applying for a travel grant might have revealed his plans. So he got a rich mathematician friend to pay his passage to Egypt. Those of you who have listened to our prior episodes know that I never miss a chance to shout out Steven Spielberg. This time, we're walking right into it. You know that ancient history professor who knows 12 languages and then gets his secret once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go raid Egypt for awesome ancient Hebrew Bible stuff, but he has to do it before the bad guys get there first? Solomon Schechter was basically a real-life Jewish Indiana Jones. Cairo, city of the living, a paradise on earth. Schechter wasn't going to get involved in any beatdowns in the bazaar, and while he probably wore his pith helmet, he did not need a gun. Instead, he had a letter of introduction from the chief rabbi of England, and also some fancy French cigarettes. He knew that the grand rabbi of Cairo would talk to him, because of course he would. They were both obsessed with rabbinic texts. And they had other things in common, too. Discovered that, you know, they really had a lot in common, a fascination with old manuscripts and texts, uh, a deep knowledge of Jewish sources, and a love of smoking. And it is said that he came to a deal with the chief rabbi because the place he needed to go to was Fustat, so uh, Misra Kadima, the old Cairo, the, the original city that had been before Cairo was built, the original Islamic capital of Egypt. And to get there um, would require some travel and slight difficulty. And so he came to a deal with the chief rabbi, supposedly, that if the chief rabbi guided him to this synagogue in old Cairo, then he, in turn, would take the rabbi out to see the pyramids because the rabbi had you know, lived in Egypt his entire life and you know, his forebears had probably settled in Egypt following 1492, but had not seen the pyramids just over the river. Yes, that's right. The grand rabbi of Cairo, a young guy in his 30s, had never been to the pyramids before. He really just wanted Schechter to take him on a day trip. And he also wanted some of those French cigarettes that Schechter had brought along. Oh, and could Schechter get him some British stamps for his stamp collection? It's easy to laugh at this grand rabbi as a naive guy looking for perks. But the truth is that he trusted Schechter in a way that he didn't trust other European visitors. The grand rabbi of Cairo actually cared about those Hebrew manuscripts and he knew that they were disappearing under his nose. The way in which these things were getting out of the Geniza and onto the market stalls in, in the souk was that synagogue servants had been sort of shifting them out. Because by this time, uh, the Suez Canal was open, there were people traveling back and forth, uh, and there were tourists coming, and people would buy a piece of a manuscript just to, to have. You can imagine that this left scholars tearing their hair out because Genuine manuscripts were being sold piece by piece to people who were just picking them up as curios. And I think the chief rabbi was worried about this. And it was also a time at which the Jewish community in Cairo was feeling slightly threatened about their presence there. They were thinking about moves elsewhere, and they thought England might be a good place for many of their members to move. So whatever deal was reached, uh, Schechter promised to take these things to Cambridge, and the chief rabbi agreed. <laughs> 
So, at last, the Grand Rabbi of Cairo brought Solomon Schechter to the Ben Ezra Synagogue. The door to the storage room had been blocked for centuries by piles of parchments. The only way in was through a hatch near the ceiling. Schechter climbed up a ladder, opened the hatch, and looked down and saw a room full of dust. Underneath the dust was a well of paper, a battlefield of books, as Schechter called it, over 20 feet deep. It contained over 130,000 documents going back a thousand years. When he stands on it, he can feel the material breaking under his feet, you know, the thousand years of paper and parchment crumbling. As Schechter later wrote, the rabbi authorized me to take from it what I liked. As a matter of fact, I liked it all. And so he did what any self-respecting representative of the 19th century British Empire would do. He packed it all up and brought it back to England. Scholars are still sorting through it to this day. There's a lot to sort through because the Geniza is not an archive. There is no other collection like it because archives in the Middle Ages were collected for a purpose. You know, there was an intention to preserve certain documents or, and they were collected by certain segments of society, ecclesiastical authorities, the law courts, royalty. Those kinds of people made archives. The Kyrgyzza is just an accidental accumulation that turns into the greatest archive, but it was not collected for any purpose other than an unwillingness to let something that potentially might have the name of God in it or might have a holy character be left lying around, which in itself is disrespectful, but in fact, you know, could be misused. Somebody might take it and use it for an amulet or misuse it in some way. So you you have to take anything, you know, that might potentially be holy and place it carefully with the intention that you'll bury it at some point in the future or it will at least remain um, undisturbed. And so over the course of a thousand years or more, the Jewish community, uh, out of a, a sense of piety and perhaps after a while out of just a habit, grew accustomed to taking their paperwork that they had in their houses. Perhaps, uh, you know, after the, somebody died, they might clear out the equivalent of their desk. And rather than sort through it, they might just drop it all into the Geniza chamber. In other words, it's a time capsule. Some of the documents in it are rare manuscripts and draft copies of important religious works. But because many people also preserved any document written in Hebrew letters, the Geniza also contains things like business contracts, sales receipts, medical prescriptions. Shopping lists, you know, letters of apology to love letters, dodgy amulets making someone fall in love with you or killing your neighbor and that kind of thing. And timeless items like a note that says, please don't spank my child for being late for school. His homework delayed him. It's less like a medieval archive than like a medieval Facebook, especially since the writing there isn't just from the elite. It's from everyone, men and women and children from every walk of life. What you have in 
the Bodleian in Oxford or in the British Library and, and in Cambridge's own Hebrew manuscript collection, is you have those items that were treasured by people over a thousand years and that made their way, you know, through different collections, through different libraries, and eventually ended up in these great libraries. And these are the best copies of these books, lovely codices produced by great scribes and, you know, produced for the purpose of posterity and preserved as such. But what you don't get is, you know, the 90% of Jewish texts that just were lost in the Middle Ages and that don't survive. You know, the books that weren't produced with an eye on posterity, the books that didn't have beautiful covers and so were collected by collectors and taken off to Italian libraries or, you know, the Duke of Buckingham didn't take it for put on his bookshelves in his stately home. But the Geniza has preserved those. What we have uniquely, almost any European culture from the Middle Ages, is we have the kind of second-rate and third-rate manuscripts and the ephemera. While, you know, libraries across the world have copies or fair copies of Maimonides' Mishneh Torah or his guide for the perplexed, you know, we have the draft copies and we have the third-rate copies produced by poor scribes, preserved, you know, in pieces, bits and pieces of them in the Karaganiza. The Geniza doesn't have many beautiful illuminated manuscripts that wind up under glass in museums. Instead, it has draft copies, scribbled notes where you can see the process of thinking happening. It's not the answers that harden into the final draft, it's the questions that lead up to it. It brings its writers back to life. Take Maimonides, for instance. Moses Maimonides was a 12th century Jewish philosopher who was the head of Cairo's Jewish community and also chief doctor to the Egyptian Sultan. He's this towering figure who seems larger than life. His most famous book of philosophy is Guide for the Perplexed, which tries to reconcile religious faith with the science of his time. It's been studied for centuries. In the Geniza, scholars found the rough drafts. They also found more personal documents, like a letter from Maimonides' brother David describing his journey to India. David traveled down the Nile by boat and across the desert by camel, and then wrote to his famous brother just before boarding a ship to India, praying for a safe voyage. Then scholars found a letter from Maimonides dated a few months later, describing his sorrow when he learned that his brother's ship to India sank in shark-infested waters. Suddenly, Maimonides wasn't just this pillar of intellectual history. He was also a person. One of those scholars still reading through the Geniza documents is Marina Rusto. I am the Chaduri A. Zilcha Professor of Jewish Civilization in the Near East at Princeton University. Rusto's work has uncovered many surprising things about medieval Jewish communities and medieval communities in general. Remember those awkward power dynamics between Schechter and the Anglican world he lived in? Well, as the Geniza reveals, he might have had an easier time as a Jew in medieval Egypt. Jews were doing everything that everyone else was doing. So they were serving in the government, serving as like high-ranking government functionaries, serving as tax collectors, serving as physicians, but not just tax collectors and physicians, also every conceivable corner of the bureaucracy run by the state that you can imagine. There were many, many points of contact between Jews and the rest of society. The Geniza reveals a lot more than just how Jews lived. It's a time capsule of daily life. It teaches us about pre-industrial societies 
in a way that is more fine-grained than almost any other context in human history allows us to, to get at. Um, and when I talk about pre-industrial societies, I mean, you know, how did the world live from, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago until roughly 1800? What the Geniza provides us with is very detailed records of daily life, literally like what did people, you know, eat for breakfast? Turns out actually they didn't eat breakfast. They had two meals a day. What did they wear? People didn't throw things away. They tended to reuse things. Used textiles were generally recycled as paper. That part about textiles being recycled into paper turns out to be really important. Since paper was so rare, people reused paper all the time, even when it was already covered with somebody else's writing. That fact led Rusto to a monumental discovery that has nothing to do with Jews. For general historians of the Middle East, there had been this idea that documents weren't very important for medieval Middle Eastern record-keeping, legal claims, that documents simply weren't the way people kind of duked it out with each other over rights and property and stuff like that. And part of that was just an illusion of the sources that not many documents have survived. The powerful Islamic empires that dominated the medieval world left behind very few official documents. For centuries, scholars assumed that those empires simply didn't keep many written records. By now, you've probably already guessed where those records were hiding. People thought, okay, this is just stuff in Hebrew script. No, it turns out there's tons of stuff from the Geniza in Arabic script. There are documents from Qadi courts written in Arabic script. And there are also documents that are like state record keeping of a sort that people didn't think had survived at all. Every time you see a Hebrew script document that has one gigantic line of Arabic in the middle around which the Jewish scribe has like arranged the Hebrew script writing, it gets cataloged in this Bodleian catalog the same way, which is scribbling. So every time I see something that's like Arabic scribbling, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that's really Arabic scribbling. Let me have a look at that. I was so into the thrill of the chase. Once Rusto started tracking those scribblings, she discovered something astonishing. It turns out they were there because Jewish scribes were reusing fragments of much, much larger Arabic script documents. And the Arabic script documents that they're reusing were government decrees. Yes, that's right. Those all-powerful Islamic empires that supposedly didn't leave behind any official records? It turns out they left behind plenty. It's just that they were left behind on paper that was reused for Hebrew writing and then dumped in a synagogue closet for 900 years. In past episodes, we've explored the ways that relationships between Jews and non-Jewish societies have sometimes worked against the Jews or even distorted the societies in which they lived. But in this strange moment of uncovering the Geniza, it was exactly Schechter's subtle exclusion from the non-Jewish world and his loyalty to Jewish tradition that caused that exclusion that made the discovery of this time capsule possible. If he weren't on the fringes of Cambridge society, he wouldn't have befriended the Scottish twins. If he had converted to the Church of England, he would never have known more about Ben Sira than his Anglican counterparts because he too would have dismissed rabbinic Judaism as a waste of time. And if he hadn't lived a Jewish life of honoring texts inscribed with God's name, he might never have guessed where those manuscripts were coming from. 
Schechter knew the power of the time capsule. He wrote, Every discovery of an ancient document is, if undertaken in the right spirit, that is, for honor of God and truth and not for the glory of the self, every discovery is an act of resurrection in miniature. There is a spark of a human soul like yours come to light again after a disappearance of centuries, crying for sympathy and mercy. You dare not neglect the appeal and slay this soul again. These are things that um, our predecessors reverenced and tried to pass on as best they could to us, and um, we should be grateful. Schechter knew things other scholars couldn't know. And he also knew something much bigger than the discovery of the Geniza itself. It was the power of text as time travel. In a Jewish culture that always saw written texts as holy, even at a time when the rest of the world could barely read. Writing is the intergenerational secret of how to live as mortals in a world that outlasts us, the secret to the revival of the dead. It's a secret known well to those who call themselves the people of the book. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sara Fredman Ader, and the executive producers are Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabi Weinberg, and Dan Luxenberg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Janet Soskis, Ben Althwaite, and Marina Rusto. You can find more information about their work in the show notes, along with other sources to learn more about the Cairo Geniza. You can also check out my novel, A Guide for the Perplexed, which explores the Geniza's discovery. Next week, we'll be talking about brilliant and not-so-brilliant Jews on the right and wrong sides of the Civil War. I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews.